Sunday Night Health Show podcast. What do you think about the U.S. dropping their mask mandate on planes, trains, and automobiles? I don't think much of it. Also, did you know that we have about 8,000 unpaid caregivers in this country? We're talking ways to improve the system. Also, do you know what egg freezing is? Well, it's spring. You ought to know. Dr. Neve Talon joins me of All Infertility to tell us about it. And also, Natalie joins us to share her story. And do you want to spark up your sex life? Well, just tune in here. I've got a great secret for you, and it's a quick one. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Okay, typically on this part of the program, we hear from Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He is the esteemed scientist who has educated us for two years about COVID-19. Every now and again, I give him a night off. Tonight's one of those nights. We certainly do miss him, and he will be returning to the program next week. So I look forward to his return, and I'm sure you do as well, but you got me for now. (laughs) Um, Because of there's just a few things out there. You know, I do some consulting work in COVID, and and I can, the work that I do, you can actually see the trends that are coming. And, And so, I, uh, unlike maybe some of you, were none too happy to see the change to the masking requirements, especially on planes and other public transportation in the United States, just south of the border. Under Transport Canada's interim order, masking is still required for the entire duration of a flight arriving at or leaving from a Canadian airport. It applies to all carriers, domestic or international. However, South of the border, as I said, a judge has ruled something entirely different. The U.S. will no longer enforce mask mandate on airplanes, trains, etc., buses, I imagine, after a court ruling. I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel a whole lot more comfortable flying in Canada than I do in the United States because, you know, as soon as people are told they don't have to do something, you know, of course, it has been so politicized. And so as soon as politicians tell you it's safe for you to remove your mask, in spite of the fact that 480 Americans are dying every day from COVID-19, but who cares? As long as it's not somebody you know, I suppose you don't care. But um, you know what? I really don't enjoy flying in the U.S. I won't be enjoying flying in the U.S. any longer. You know, you have the confidence in Canada. Everyone is fully vaccinated and they're wearing a mask. And you probably don't get as many people arguing about wearing a mask. Well, that won't be happening anymore um, as it did a number of times. And thousands of people, and I think it was 7,000 people have been in the U.S. have been put on a no-fly list because they were arguing with flight attendants on planes and and basically endangering other people. But apparently that won't happen anymore because the Biden administration will no longer enforce a U.S. mask mandate on public transportation. A federal judge, and of course, none other than Florida, last week ruled that the 14-month-old directive was unlawful, overturning that key White House effort to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Of course, we're seeing another Uh, Another wave, another surge, the transmissibility of the BA2 variant is significantly higher than um, BA1, the Omicron. Um, But nonetheless, the major carriers, American Airlines, United Airlines, Delta, 
and also Amtrak have relaxed their restrictions and that is effective immediately. Uh, I mean, there's actually, somebody explained to me, there's actually no point in the U.S. trying to appeal this. Um, They had actually extended the mask mandate to May 3rd. That would have required travelers to wear masks on airplanes, trains, and taxis, Uber, rideshare, saying they needed time to assess the impact of a recent rise, which uh, we are having right now, a rise in COVID cases that has been caused by the coronavirus. Um, you know, there it's interesting. This has been just so politicized and it is something like 16% of Democrats were in favor of relaxing the mask restriction and, um, 60% of Republicans were in favor. So, you know, I, when I mentioned that those 7,000 people who were, um, put on a no fly list, I wonder just how many of them are Republicans and how many are Democrats, but, I mean, it is just incredible, this ruling as COVID-19 infections rise in the United States. And I certainly hope Canada doesn't go this way. There have been 36,000 new infections every single day in the U.S. and 460 daily deaths. And that's based on a seven-day average. And that's the highest number of reported total COVID-19 deaths in the world. It is just sad and shocking. And, you know, it's a bit, you know, I don't even like to say restrictions. I like to call the mask a protection because that's exactly what it is. It is a protection. It is certainly not a restriction. Um, but you make your own decision. You know, if you feel, I mean, masks work. KN95 masks work incredibly well. And the film industry is one industry that demonstrated that quite well, in fact. Um they actually, um, before there were vaccines, before there were medications, before there was, we learned so much, or as, as much as we know right now about COVID-19, all the film industry had in getting tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of people back to work around the globe, all they had was basically masks. Uh, they were using screens, which are no longer um, recommended uh, because we know we've learned so much more. Mm-hmm about this airborne virus and ventilation. Um, so that's pretty much all they had at the time was masks and masks, you know, prevented COVID-19 transmission. It would come into the film industry, but it would not spread. There were very, very few, if any transmissions. Um, but, uh, you know, now two years later, people are tired of it. People are spoiled. Um, it's here we are just increasing the risk for many people, many people who are immunocompromised. And some of those people who are immunocompromised are people with advancing age. And advancing age is, you know, people over the age of 48, okay? That's when age begins to be considered advancing. Not to mention immunocompromised people, people who are going through chemotherapy and cancer treatments. So this is just something that... um, you know, I don't know. I, I think we're going to actually see, um, you know, this change again. This is going to morph. We're going to talk to Dr. Jason Kinderchuk about this next week as well. We were just talking about how the U.S. is uh, dropping mask requirements for planes, trains, and automobiles, rideshare, etc. Just curious how you might feel about that. I, I certainly hope that Canada doesn't follow in their lead. Um, but 
you know what? You never know, but I'm going to be wearing my mask for sure. Um, I just wanted to share with you a little story <laughs> about, um, have you ever flown and actually been on a plane with somebody who just was non-compliant with their mask when the, when the mask mandates were there? Well, I did. And so I got into my seat. I like a window seat. I usually like the left-hand side of the plane, but nonetheless, I'm on the right and I see there's a woman in my row. She's seated at the end uh, in the aisle and she has a Make America Great Again hat on, a mega hat. And so I get into the window and um, this woman um, starts to fall asleep and she doesn't have her mask on. And the flight attendant noticed fairly immediately and came and woke her up and asked her to put her mask on. So she put it on for about 12 seconds and then she took it down and just took out massive amounts of food and drink and proceeded to be eating and drinking for a protracted period of time. And I believe, although correct me if I'm wrong, it's about 15 minutes that one is actually allowed to eat on a plane maximum. So this woman went well beyond that and um, was just continuing to eat. And then the flight attendant came back and said, spoke to her again, and the passenger started yelling at the flight attendant and started saying that she um, had didn't have to wear one and she had a medical condition that prevented her from wearing one and was getting all upset. And so that flight attendant, who seemed fairly new, went and got the top flight attendant um, to come and speak to her. And that woman was very serious and um, very straightforward. And she said, you need to put this mask on. Or And she provided her with a mask because the woman actually didn't have the appropriate mask on at all. And so she provided her with a surgical mask, and which a KN95 is much better. But nonetheless, she said, you need to put this on, and this is the information. And if you do not comply, you will be met by the authorities when you land. And this, this passenger was yelling at the flight attendant and was just rude. I mean, it was just, it was so embarrassing for her. But of course, the person who was sitting in the middle seat and myself, we were laughing <laughs> so hard thinking, this is just unbelievable. Everybody on the plane had their mask on except for this one particular person. And lo and behold, and she did actually say to her, you can um, be put on a no-fly list. And that is definitely true. I did a little bit of research on that, and that certainly can happen. And so exactly what that flight attendant promised did happen to that woman. When she landed, she was met by the authorities. Now, I don't know what the outcome was, but I walked by her when she was speaking to the authorities, and she was trying to say that the flight attendant was abusing her and screaming at her, which none of that was true anyway. But, I mean, it, it's just unbelievable basically how politicized the this pandemic has become, and that's one of the biggest problems with it. But what is our immunity like now that most U.S. cities have dropped masking requirements and other precautions against COVID-19? What are your chances of getting infected, being hospitalized, or dying if you happen to get sick? Well, we know from research that people who are unvaccinated are mostly those people who have been hospitalized, and those are the people who are dying. But the people who have been vaccinated, who are up-to-date, which is boosted and up-to-date by the CDC is defined as boosted, and even people who are boosted can actually get coronavirus virus, um, in spite of the fact that they have been boosted, but they typically will get a, um, a shorter course of illness and lower burden of disease. So it is a good idea to get boosted when it's recommended. And depending on what you had for your primary series, if you had the mRNA vaccine, 
then five months after that, or if you've had the Johnson and Johnson, it's two months after that, because protection against illness drops off over three to four months after you've had your last dose, but the protection against hospitalization and death remains high. And you might wonder why, well, it's all about antibodies. The antibodies are those frontline defenders of your immune system. They gradually drop off after an infection or a vaccination. Lots of people think I had COVID-19 and I've gotten one booster. I should be, you know, superpower here against COVID, but no, because the, um, the, you actually drop your, um, protection after three to four months and over a few months, as I say, it fades away and that's normal, but it does leave your body open to another viral invasion. But the good news is that although immune defense begins with antibodies, it certainly does not end there. We also have B cells and T cells, and they remain imprinted with the memory of the virus or the vaccine. So they can make another antibody army if they encounter that pathogen. So it takes a little time to build that army. So while your body is gearing up for this particular fight, you know, you may actually get some symptoms, but your immune system should actually help you out and come to your rescue so that you will recover from this particular illness um, without too many symptoms or too much disruption to your life. But this is how it's supposed to work, but it doesn't necessarily work this way because we have people who are immunocompromised. We have people who have lower immune function. We have people who are advancing in age. And so those are also, then we have people who actually have comorbidities and we have so many people that have comorbidities. So they have hypertension, type two diabetes, obesity. And so these people are at greater risk um, from uh, greater risk for getting COVID-19, for actually getting hospitalized. Um, so the protection you get from vaccines really depends on your immune function. So it's really difficult to say um, how we are doing as a community. But I will say this, we've had a lot more vaccine uptake um, from people. There's been a lot more illness in the community as well. And so that provides some protection as well. But after five months, boosters offer almost no protection against Omicron infection. And that data has come out of the UK's health security agency. And so we are potentially looking at another booster in the fall. Um, right now, that BA2 variant is highly transmissible. Lots more people are getting it. There's a lot of people who are just thinking, what the heck, I might as well get it. Let's get it and get it over with. But you know what? You can actually get COVID-19 again after 23 days or 35 days. We're seeing um, a lot in um, certain industries. So you can get COVID again and again and again. And it really depends on your age, your immune function, uh, how many vaccines you've had, what vaccines that you've had, and whether or not you have had an infection or not. There was a study published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open that found that unvaccinated people who had recovered from COVID-19 were about 85% less likely to get it again compared with people who were unvaccinated and uninfected. So people who had recovered from infection were about 88% less likely to be hospitalized than those who were unvaccinated. And this particular protection is on par with that conferred by mRNA vaccines, and that remains uh, in place or stable for about nine months. So people who get COVID-19 will generate, about 90% of people who get COVID-19 will generate antibodies after their infections. But how much protection you get 
also depends on your symptoms. And people with symptoms will make more antibodies than those without. This is so complicated. There's just so much to consider here. But keep in mind that COVID is a very high risk, potentially high consequential way of getting immunity. It's not the way you want to do it. But, you know, if you've had COVID, you went through it, you survived it, you have immunity, we need to respect that. And we need to incorporate that in the ways that we draw that new social contract of COVID-19. But we do have more immunity than in the past, but how good? Well, we're still leaving that up to the experts. As part of its commitment to the more than 8 million caregivers across Canada, Teva Canada has been looking at ways for Canadians to explore a brighter future for healthcare. How can care be reimagined for the betterment of patients and caregivers at all stages of life? To move the conversation forward throughout the months of April and May, they've started a dialogue of shared experiences from some of Canada's brightest minds, caregivers, patients, and healthcare professionals, to create a new prescription for care. They've developed a fabulous five-part podcast series where notable healthcare thought leaders are sharing their views on what a new prescription for care would look like. The host, Mark Stolo, is CEO of People Before Patients, a movement that invites everyone to engage in healthcare reform. My next guest, Corrine DeGray, is a guest on the upcoming podcast. The podcasts were developed to bring together thought leaders with various healthcare experiences to give their ideas on how healthcare can be better delivered in the future. Corrine represents caregivers on this panel of experts and is going to be discussing her experience with me. So she joins me on the line, Corrine DeGray. She's a nurse and entrepreneur. Early in her career, she worked in the public healthcare system, and she left that system feeling that she could not practice healthcare the way she'd hoped. Inspired by the desire to give more time and attention to her patients, she ventured into the world of the private sector and entrepreneurship. Corrine is going to talk about the opportunity to improve the patient experience by creating more access points to healthcare. And she highlights the frustration that many people feel in the traffic jams that are created by our current system. Good evening, Karine. How are you? Very good. And you, Maureen? I'm very well. Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate it. Um, This is uh, very, very good work that you're doing. Now, as I mentioned, you started out in the public healthcare system. That's a very challenging system. Um, and you certainly had your challenges with that as well, and in fact, decided to leave it. What made you leave the public health care system? So as a nurse, we like to be with the patient, to pass time with the patient, to listen to them, talk with them, and presently um, and how the, 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 health, the public health system, it's, make, it's really difficult to... Uh, to do that with the patient. So it was really frustrating for me to don't have enough time with the patient. So that was the, and, and first, the major point of my decision in the past. Right. And, and as you say, nurses do like to spend time with the patients. That's where they learn the most about the patient's mm-hmm. health, the patient's needs, the patient's desires. Did you find that there was a lot of administrative work in uh, the public health sector? that prevented yes, you from spending time with your patients. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
so a lot and it was many years ago almost 15 or 16 years ago and i think it's worse now at uh, that time at this time so um so yes i think uh, it's uh, it's really uh, too hard to spend time because we have so many administrative uh, paper and work to do and and it actually causes uh, a lot of traffic jams as you say um in the current system. So what are some of the frustrations that you heard from your patients in the public health care system? So the time, first, I think is the first major point, the time to be seen by a doctor and also the time to be seen by other uh, health professionals because presently how the health system uh, is, is made is that you need to be sick to go inside the uh, the public uh, health system. If you're not sick, you don't have access to a doctor. So I think that's the major point. Um, so you need to be seen by a doctor before and after this doctor will refer to the other health professional. So it's very, very difficult to be seen in public health system presently. If you don't, you didn't, um, being referred by a doctor. So you need to go in private system if you want to see another health professional. And you know, many people in this, sure, many people in this country don't, oh no, no, I apologize. Uh, Many people in this country don't have a physician. So that's a bottleneck right there or can be for some patients. So they don't have a family doctor, so they need to be sick to go at the hospital, come in uh, to the public health system, seen by a doctor, and this same doctor will refer to other department or other health professional or other specialized doctor. Uh, so that, that's the only issue that they have, the only way to get in uh, the public health system. So if they are not sick and they don't have any family doctor, the only way to see a doctor is to be sick. So we don't have any... Absolutely. um, We don't have a lot of... um, We don't have a lot of uh, of things put in place here to do prevention. So we wait that the people are sick. We don't have a lot. So we wait that the people are sick to come in the public health system. Uh, some patients here in Quebec um, have private insurance, and that way can be different if they have private insurance. But for the public health system, it's the only way. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And there's just so much evidence to support the prevention is critical to overall health and longevity of life and improved quality of life. So you decided actually to leave the public health system and enter the world of the private sector and entrepreneurship, which is in and of itself frightening, but your passion was, you know, that uh, high um, and you were very deeply concerned about your patients uh, that you dared to take that step. So I'd like to go to break right now, but when I come back, I would like to talk a little bit more about exactly what it is you do and how that can help patients. And also we'll talk a little bit about the Teva Canada podcasts 
that are coming up and uh, what you're hoping to share with the listeners of that podcast. As I mentioned previously, Teva Canada is the world's largest medicine cabinet offering generic specialty biosimilar and OTC medicines to Canadians. They also provide resources to patients and caregivers. And as part of their commitment to more than 8 million Canadian caregivers, Teva Canada has been looking at ways for Canadians to explore a brighter future for healthcare. To move the conversation forward throughout the months of April and May, they've started a dialogue of shared experiences from some of Canada's brightest minds, caregivers, patients, and healthcare professionals to create a new prescription for care. And they've developed a fabulous five-part podcast series where notable healthcare thought leaders are sharing their views on what a new prescription for care would look like. The host is Mark Stolo. He is the CEO of People Before Patients, a movement that invites everyone to gauge engage in healthcare reform. And joining me on the line is Corrine DeGray. She is a nurse and an entrepreneur. Early in her career, she worked in the public health care system, but left that system because she was very frustrated with how that practice unfolded. She was inspired by the desire to give more time and attention to her patients. And so she now works in private sector and she's an entrepreneur. Corrine, thanks so much for staying on the line. Thank you. No problem. You're welcome. So uh, number, how many years ago did you enter? Did you leave the public health care system and enter into the private sector? I was into the public system around 15, 16 years ago. Okay. And so what did you decide to do once you left? So I decided to go in the private system maybe to to try to help to change the way how the health system works. So it's a little bit more easier to do it. And I had the opportunity to put uh, some different clinic in place in the private system um, to try to change a little bit the way that, that it's done, it, it was done and it's, it's presently done here um, since 15, 16 years ago. So I start at the beginning by uh, implement um, nursing clinic in collaboration with pharmacists in pharmacies in Quebec. So I think one of the key of the the second key, because I I talked uh, before about the the first key, I think to change the the way how it does in the public system is the the prevention, and I think the second key is the uh, multidisciplinarity of care that we can give uh, and the opportunity uh, that we have uh, different uh, healthcare professional accessible for the people uh, everywhere. And so how does your business work? So I think that it has two different health professionals that it's very accessible for the patient. We have the first one, I think, n- nurse. We, I think we are the, the majority of the health professional uh, in Canada. So we have so many nurses, and I don't think that it's, uh, it's enough used as it's supposed to be with all the, the knowledge that they have and the, the expertise, uh, how they are training uh, at the school and the university. I think we can use them a lot more than what we, how they are using presently. And also the pharmacists with all the uh, different multidisciplinary care that they can 
uh, give the accessibility of of the pharmacist. Like, for example, the pharmacy, it's open like seven days a week, uh, almost um, 12 to 24 hours a day. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to have a health professional uh, like a pharmacist on the phone as soon as we need to to uh, to that we have a question or uh, we want to have any advice about the health they have also the knowledge and the accessibility to be more implicated with nurse nurse i think uh into the um, the healthcare uh, and they say that the nurses are the future educators of, of healthcare and that the role is going to be expanding tremendously, which it sounds like you have done. So it, how do, does this work in that if a person has a question about their medical condition or their medication, they would call you and in conjunction with the pharmacist, the two of you would educate the patient? Here in Quebec, a lot of pharmacy already has a collaboration with nursing clinic inside the pharmacies. So I think it, it we can make uh, we can make it uh, work uh, with the, these two professionals to give more accessibility of healthcare professional and maybe take care uh, more of the patient before they are sick. So they can be mm-hmm. there for prevention. They can be there for treatment. They can be there for adjustment. And I think if we we take the nurses and, and the pharmacists, so if we implicate them more, uh, maybe earlier in the plan or the prevention or the treatment plan of the patient, it can be a, a, a big uh, changer into our public or private system. Uh, so to have that health professional very accessible for the patient, I think we can change the way how they are uh, they are implicated inside the treatment plan and maybe implicate them earlier and more with doctors uh, for care plan of the patient. So it sounds like it ultimately results in greater care coordination, this multidisciplinary approach uh, to uh, preventive health, basically. And so it's it's actually having more minds on it and easier, faster access. Does that pretty much sum it up? Yes, exactly. And and what have been, been the outcomes for patients? What, what are some of the things that patients say about it? About the the implication earlier of the nursing nurse and the uh, pharmacist. Yes. How are how are they happy with the service? Do they notice a big difference from uh, pre other models of care? Yes. Sure. Presently in our clinic, uh, they are very happy of the the rapidity and the accessibility of the pharmacist and uh, the the nursing. But uh, to to be to have access to it, they 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 need to be like I said, uh, sick to to come in. And mm-hmm. with their opinion, they said that we need to be more implicated uh, in prevention. So the patient know about it is just the opportunity that we have, for example, with people with uh, people. Before patients, 
with that initiative here with Tiva, we have, I think it's the it's a voice to, to start to, to do a change. So it's by talking about uh, the certain issues that we have uh, that we can change uh, the way that it's done. Absolutely. It's, it sounds like a tremendous change. And you're going to be one of the guests on one of the upcoming podcasts that has been sponsored by Teva Canada. And uh, what messages would you like to get out? Why would somebody want to listen to those podcasts, in your opinion? Yes, I think like uh, we, we see an evolution in healthcare. So we need to think about how we are doing the thing. So we cannot do always the same thing and think that it will do a, diff- a different conclusion. So the way it's cha- the, the, the health of the people change, the, um, how long the people live change. Uh, I think that presently the people live longer, so are more sick, and we need to change the, the, how, the way how the health uh, system works presently to give better care and more accessive care, I think. And the, on my side, I think that the one of the key can be prevention and multidisciplinarity of care by implicate more the nurses and the pharmacists. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kareen, for joining the program tonight. And thank you for your upcoming contribution on the Teva Canada podcast, which uh, I'm sure a lot of people in this country are looking forward to for a new prescription for care. Thank you so much, Maureen. You're very welcome. You can find a new podcast episode every Tuesday between April 5th and May 3rd. In addition, Teva Canada wants you to be a part of the conversation. They want your ideas, big and small, that would support caregivers and change the way we view and deliver healthcare in Canada. Check out their Prescription for Care survey at www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In 10 minutes, you can have a say in the kind of health and care you'd like to see in the future. You're also invited to a special live virtual panel event on May 10th that brings our podcast experts together along with keynote speaker and former TSN host Michael Landsberg, who is a fierce mental health advocate and caregiver. It promises to be an intriguing look at how health and wellness experts envision a more evolved healthcare system. Again, to listen to the podcast, participate in the survey, or register for the free event, visit www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. That's www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We've got lots to talk about on this program. Have you ever considered freezing your eggs? Do you even know what that is? Well, Dr. Neve Tallon is an infertility and egg freezing specialist at Olive Fertility in Vancouver, British Columbia, and she joins me on the line to tell us all about it. Good evening, Dr. Tallon. Good evening. Thank you for having me tonight. Oh, well, thank you for coming here in the springtime and talking about egg freezing. A a lot of people are probably scratching their heads out there thinking, what the heck is this? Some others might be saying it's the best gift you can give to your single 30-year-old daughter. 
What exactly is egg freezing? So uh, this is technology that came into play more mainstream since about 2015, whereby we're able to stimulate a woman's eggs to grow in a short period of time with hormonal medications. And over that time when we're happy and we feel we have a reasonable yield of eggs, we go about coordinating an egg harvest. And we're able in the lab to safeguard the best quality eggs that they have of today and freeze them for potential future use, which is obviously very important now when we look at two big things. One being infertility is very common today with one in six couples being affected with the inability to conceive on their own uh, within a year of trying. And if we look at the limitations that our treatment options provide, it really is the age of the egg with which we're using when they're looking to conceive. So if we were able to have someone's younger egg set aside for potential future use, well, we're thereby giving them their best shot of success with their younger eggs when we have safeguarded them in a freezer. So I would imagine, oh, go ahead. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is we're, we're seeing socially a big change for women in that the age of having the first child has increased in Canada and the stats on this are pretty compelling when you see, you know, back in the 60s, women were having their first baby at the age of 23 and now you know, 20, uh, 2019, women were almost 30 years of age having their first baby. So this really comes down to a difficulty nowadays with finding a partner. And we're seeing a lot of single women who want to have children in the future and they're looking at the clock and they're realizing, you know, I want to be more proactive. I may not use these eggs in the future. Maybe I won't meet a partner and I'll get some donor sperm and I'll have a baby on my own. And that is becoming a very common conversation of today. Uh, That is just amazing. I was actually going to say that this would be, I would imagine this would benefit women who are perhaps wanting to focus on their career first and and perhaps put childbearing off a bit later. Or as you said, uh, women who are looking at that biological clock ticking away to the magic age of 35. And so if somebody hasn't met somebody, a partner that they want to spend the rest of their lives with potentially at say 34, 32, 33, uh, this would be an option for them. It really is a a very valid piece of technology. Now, I should stress, there is no guarantee that you go through one treatment cycle and that your eggs that you harvest are necessarily going to bring you a baby in the future. Um, You know, every egg is a completely different genetic entity and you also will need sperm at some point, which will contribute to the outcome of that kind of attempt at pregnancy. Um, but certainly we see massive trends towards improvement when you're using younger eggs. So I'll give you an idea of what that means. You know, if you had 10 eggs frozen from, you know, a woman under the age of 35, well, the likelihood of her having a baby later on is about like 60% actually having a baby, not, you know, miscarrying or this is going to term in delivering. Um, if you contrast that to someone, you know, who considers doing this at the age of 38 or 40, who gets 10 eggs, well, their likelihood of a live birth goes down to 40%. So there's a tangible difference with respect to age. Um, and certainly if women get 10 eggs when they're younger from a treatment cycle, they're not likely going to get that in a few years' time. 
you always get your best number of eggs and best quality the younger you are. Absolutely, and that is perfectly understandable. Um, yeah. You know, and, and a lot of women worry. They worry that in spite of all of the apps, the dating apps that are available, um, that they're actually still not meeting that right person. Or, as I said, they want to focus on their career. So would somebody... What is the procedure like and how difficult is it? It's pretty straightforward. I have to say uh, women who haven't experienced the struggles of infertility often find going through an egg freezing cycle much more empowering um, because they're doing something positive for themselves. Unfortunately, women who struggle with infertility often come to see us with already a long struggle behind them and now embarking upon treatment is is emotionally quite uh, difficult. Um, but egg freezing as a technology and it requires that we harvest eggs and it takes about anywhere between 8 to 12 days of exposure to hormones. We call them gonadotropins and they're the hormones that are released from a woman's brain to signal to make one egg a month. Well, we override that signal in a bigger dose to try and get as many eggs as possible that she has sitting there that month to grow. And that's an important thing to understand is we can't, you know, steal eggs from subsequent months and safeguard them. We can't get any number of eggs. That would be an infertility specialist's dream. But unfortunately, the body and all of us would be different even at a given age. Our bodies dictate the number of eggs that we have available in that month to grow. And so we just try to maximize the likelihood we get a big number. And the egg retrieval process is a vaginal procedure where we use ultrasound to guide the retrieval of eggs and it takes about 15 minutes. Women are awake, but they're medicated so that they're comfortable. Most find it fascinating to watch the entire process where we just go through the top of the vagina with a needle into the ovary and we're able to aspirate the fluid from the ovaries that month that contain the eggs floating around. Um, there's obviously a little bit of bleeding for women, but recovery is often quite swift. The biggest thing I hear from women going through treatment is they don't like that they cannot exercise for the month over which they're doing treatment and for the two weeks after retrieval. And that is really because the ovaries become so big with lots of eggs that we just want them to be safe and to take it easy and listen to their body in that time. So it, exactly. it is quite no. quick. Mm-hmm. Is it painful? Quite a quick. Um, no, because they're medicated. If a woman wasn't medicated, it would be uncomfortable. But we, we are able to medicate the, them so that they're able to get through the procedure. Okay. And is this something that a woman would do every year or a couple of times a year just to get as many eggs as possible? Well, you bring up a good point. So um, there are some other indications whereby we do egg freezing and we consider them like they're more medical, meaning someone is about to embark upon chemotherapy, radiation, or a sterilizing procedure due to cancer, for example. And they're trying to safeguard their eggs quickly before they go undergo that kind of a treatment. So usually that is a one-time procedure for that, that kind of a patient. For um, the woman who's coming in, for example, or the individual maybe who is about to embark upon, say, testosterone exposure to transition, um, you know, to, uh, like, for example, a transgender um, male, um, then we're looking at doing that quickly for them before they embark upon their treatment. But for women looking at, you know, safeguarding their eggs because they haven't met a partner or for other social reasons, 
Well, in that situation, they have the option of seeing how they do over one treatment. And sometimes they want to increase the high number or high likelihood of those eggs bringing uh, a baby later on. So they do look at it doing it more than one time. It's very fascinating. And I, and I thank you so much, Dr. Talon, for your information. Um, and uh, people can get more information uh, for the Olive Fertility Center where? Um, they absolutely can get it at our website, www.olivefertility.com. And this is Canadian Infertility Awareness Week. Wear green to support um, all the patients struggling out there with infertility. And look at your monuments across the cities uh, of Canada this, this Wednesday. They'll all be lit up in green. Now on the line, I have Natalie. And she is a person who has gone through egg freezing and is here to share her story. Good evening, Natalie. Hi, thanks for calling me. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for joining the program and for sharing your story. We empower others when we do that, so I really appreciate that. So egg freezing is something that's very familiar to you. Um, We learned a little bit about it in the last segment. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about your story and why you decided to go this route. Well, time was ticking, to be honest. I was 37, and I hadn't found uh, Mr. Wright or even Mr. Pretty Good. (laughs) And so I decided uh, after listening to a CBC show about egg freezing, I decided to have a consult at Olive and I felt it was the right choice. And I moved forward very quickly with it after meeting with Dr. Gary Nakuda and feeling very confident in the procedure and that it kind of held the key for me um, in terms of having the family that I always dreamt of. So I went ahead at 37, had my eggs frozen. I did one round. And then I uh, kept my search on for Mr. Wright. And by 40, I still was feeling um, a little down on my luck in that department. But I was kind of done um, trying. And what I wanted was that family. And I realized that I could have it all on my own. And that families look very different now than they used to. And I uh, decided to push ahead at age 40. And I had um, my transfer of my first embryo. And I did happen to stumble across a, a man along the way at that point, and uh, we got married, and it's kind of a cool love story. But the point is, I didn't wait for him. I didn't have to, and I have the family with or without the man. I did happen to get the man, but um, now I have two kids. Um, so it all turned out like... <laughs> Do you mean the man? Awesome is, is the man your second child? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> My third. He's my third toddler. <laughs> okay. There we go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's my so story. You, if, go ahead. It's a wonderful story. And so um, tell me, the it was such a uh, great decision for you, obviously. What yeah. did your family or friends think of your decision? Because, you know, it's it's a little bit unusual, if you will. Yeah, I'm a bit unusual, I guess. I, I consider myself a leader, so um, I, I wasn't too concerned about what others were doing. But you're right. When I, I'm 45 now, so when I was 37 and I did the freezing, no one really knew about it. And it was something mm-hmm. people considered like the rich and the famous um, to do and not just regular people. And I was lucky to have the support again of my mom. And she was able to help me financially so that I didn't have to make that decision. And So many women don't have the fortune of having the support. And that's part of my mission now in telling my story is also, you know, agitating for a bit of change there. Because 
again, it's all on women. You know, if you don't find the man, if you're getting older, if you focus on your career, well, too bad for you. You've got to get the money together to save your eggs so that you have the choices. But the choices are not just for women. It's about families, right? So, um, again, I was really lucky. It was unusual for sure. Um, but I, I had the support I needed and I, like I said, I'm more of a leader than a follower. So I didn't really mind too much that people didn't know. And I wasn't ashamed at all because I feel like, you know, so much out of your life is out of, out of your control. And I really understood that as I, you know, went on all these dates and did what the rabbi said and everything. And I still wasn't finding Mr. Right. I didn't have control. And I, can have control over my fertility, though, if I freeze my eggs. And that's what really appealed to me. Absolutely. And I would say you're confident and self-assured. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, and maybe that's a little unusual as well, because it's, it's so great that um, you don't care what anybody else thinks. Uh, and you have this yeah. beautiful family now. And so many yeah. people you know, they suffer with the challenges of navigating fertility treatments, especially during the pandemic. Um, so yeah. you actually got pregnant for a second time at all of fertility using a frozen embryo. Yeah. Yep. Yep. In the thick of it. I, um, as soon as I started getting some sleep, I started to think it was a good idea to have another one. <laughs> and of course I had, I had two embryos out of the whole thing. So I decided to roll the dice and, you know, it was during a pandemic, but nothing stopped me before from pursuing that family and I wasn't going to let a pandemic. And so I just navigated all the protocols um, that were in place. And of course, it's a little bit scary when you're pregnant and you're, um, you know, you're worried about getting COVID and whatnot. But again, I had really good advice from Dr. Nakuda who remains, you know, like a friend and someone I could easily reach out to and consult with. And, you know, he gave good advice. I had all my COVID shots. I was healthy throughout the whole thing. And I was able to have the second transfer and it was successful. And I, I just want to say, like, I feel like a really lucky person because many women don't have successful transfers, you know, at the first go. Um, so it's even more of a struggle for women financially and emotionally. And I just want to acknowledge that because my story is, you know, I am older. So that's nice that I'm older. I, I was 40 when I had REA and I was 45 or I can't even remember how old I am. Um, but I want to acknowledge that I had some luck on my side and I also took good care of my health, but, um, yeah, some women don't have it as good, but I, I was lucky with both transfers. They both stuck and I have really well. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you were uh, very lucky. And also, did you have your first baby before you met the man or did that all kind of happen? Yeah. So we met in March. We met in March, and I was like, hey, you're a nice guy, but I'm going to be a single mom in September. And he was like, I'm in. And I'm like, I don't know you, but you're a special guy if you think that's pretty cool. And uh, I had REA in September. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I had the transfer in September. So we were together when I had the transfer, and we were together when I had REA. And then um, when baby Joey came along, I was 44, and then we had, so we were together when we had Joey too. And that was during the pandemic and Joey's five months now. I think I got all the chronology, right? I, I still haven't really had a good night's sleep. <laughs> Takes a while. Exactly. You got to get a full night's sleep. Natalie, thank you so much. What a wonderful story. What a wonderfully uplifting story. And, and I really appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. 
Well, thank you for your interest. And I'm just so happy to share. It's a success story and it's because of all of fertility, really. That is so true. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. Have a great night. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Always a pleasure to have you with me. And something else that is pleasurable as well for our little Back to the Bedroom segment. We were earlier talking about close contact, and this segment certainly involves close contact. But these days... It's difficult to devote yourself to your partner, for example. For most people, busy schedules mean you barely have time for that daily shower, let alone a leisurely lovemaking session, but it is important. And so this is where the quickie comes into play. Yes, I did say play. The quickie is such a brilliant option, but oftentimes people dismiss the quickie as not good enough or um, not uh, romantic enough, not pleasurable enough, but it does and should be part of your romantic plan, (laughs) if you will. It definitely should be part of your romantic repertoire as it allows you to reap the benefits of sex without taking up too much of your time. And time is a commodity these days for sure, especially if you're raising children, if you're busy working, or if you're working from home and trying to actually do the homeschooling thing. I mean, there are so many different ways. Or perhaps you've retired and you just have too much to do in terms of that golf club. Or you're just trying to figure it all out and just balance life. But there are definitely health benefits to having quickie sex. And they are substantial. And the number one reason you should be having quickie sex or sex any any way, any kind, any time, consensually, of course, and mutually, is that it relieves stress. So many people are stressed out these days, especially given the last two years. I mean, there are so many decisions you make in your life that might stress you out. For example, you might decide to wear a mask, not during sex, but or you might, depending how well you know somebody, but you know, when you go out shopping and you can actually these days, because these protections have been lifted, these days you can get dirty looks from people. And so trying to reduce stress can become a stressful undertaking itself. And a lot of people feel badly or they might not put the mask on because other people are judging them. I say, put the mask on, do whatever you want, as long as it's legal and it's beneficial for you. You make your own decisions and have that confidence to make your own decisions. So thankfully, having frequent intercourse may help you chill out. And that is all in part due to the release of the hormone oxytocin. And, you know, oxytocin is that bonding hormone. It is so beneficial. It helps with pleasure. And you get a good hit of this feel-good hormone almost any time. So very, very beneficial. Consider that quickie. Another reason that you want to consider the quickie is it will help you possibly prevent getting or ward off COVID-19 because it boosts your immune system. And so if somebody's not really feeling it, not really in the mood, you might want to remind them that it could actually be beneficial for their immune system. So, you know, whether you're trying to ward off COVID or a cold, fast sex may be your new secret weapon. And I suggest it. According to a survey in Newsweek magazine, more frequent sex can translate into a stronger immune system for many women as it triggers the body's defense mechanism. 
basically taking a little vitamin C for some people and having sex frequently could help you become that germ-fighting sex machine. Uh, I'm not 100% out on the vitamin C. I think you can get it uh, through your diet. And so, and also perhaps if the sun ever shines in your life, um, it's also beneficial and, um, you know, good nutrition is very helpful. But the other reason that you might want to engage in those quickies or think about it when you you think, eh, I don't feel like it. I'm too tired. I don't want it. Think quickie. It's going to be over soon. How many of you have said that in your head, hopefully, but a quickie will also improve circulation. You want to keep that blood blood pumping because it's a critical part of your overall health. And sex can help to improve your blood circulation. It may be the most pleasurable way to ensure strong circulatory health. I do also promote exercise. That's incredibly important every single day. And that helps with your mood, your mental health, your uh, agility, your flexibility. So very, very important that exercise. But once again, let's get back to that quickie sex, which you may actually dismiss, but don't dismiss the quickie sex. I, especially if you're in a loving relationship, you want to stay with your partner. A- and even if you have low desire, you don't feel like doing it. It's important because another reason is that it promotes pain relief. And so it might help to soothe whatever it is that ails you. As people age, they start to get aching joints in their feet, in their hips, in their back. Even if it's chronic pain, sexual intimacy may help with that chronic pain. But you know what? An unexpected romp in the kitchen is way more fun than actually popping pills like aspirin or Tylenol or Advil. They all have side effects. But the only side effects to quickie sex is feeling good, having that release of oxytocin. One of the most important reasons for quickie sex is it strengthens intimacy. It helps you bond with your partner. These days, people are so busy with kids, grandchildren, tennis, golf, whatever it is, work, things that are demanding attention, family, family issues, family problems. There, there are so many. The pandemic, so much is taking away our attention. And so having time to reconnect during these time-strapped days with your partner is critical. And quickies fit the bill quite nicely because they offer you that chance to enjoy your partner's company, enjoy each other. That is what it's all about. And you know what? A quickie can be done at a moment's notice, and it might only take a moment. (laughs) We'll cover that other subject on another segment at another time. But Ensuring that you are engaging in physical intimacy helps to keep the spark alive. And it can also strengthen your overall relationship, which is very important. I deal with a lot of couples who have an imbalance of power in their relationship. People who are financially supporting the relationship, yet there's no intimacy. This can cause big problems all around in the relationship. But strong relationships are as important to your health as sleep and diet. And that's according to research done at Harvard Medical School. No matter how busy you are, make that time for intimacy because it is critical for your relationship and also your overall health. And both of those lead to a longer, healthier, happier life. You know, I get, I, I actually wrote a LinkedIn article. I haven't posted it yet, but soon to be, if you follow me on LinkedIn, because I had a patient come into my office, virtually actually, and um, they have high blood pressure and they were told by their doctor that, they, they were put on medication and they were told by their doctor that it's too late. You know, with all the plaque that has built up over the years, there's nothing they can do besides medication 
to lower their blood pressure. I completely and entirely disagree. Good nutrition and exercise has been shown to reduce blood pressure, and many people have uh, come off of antihypertensive medications once they have gotten into a low glycemic index diet, high protein. Um, You know, sugar is inflammatory, and it's going to inflame your blood vessels just as much as it's going to inflame everything else, and it's going to lead to pain and that kind of thing. So, you know, what they forgot to say at Harvard was that uh, sex will also lower blood pressure as well. High stress levels often cause blood pressure numbers to skyrocket as well. And according to a 2006 study in biological psychology, people who had penetrative intercourse reportedly had lower baseline levels of blood pressure than their counterparts. So diet, exercise, and sex. It's a way to drop your blood pressure. And you know what? How about sleep? Sleep is critical, and there are so many people that feel way too wired all night long for all the wrong reasons. People's minds are going, but sex can actually help you get a little bit more shut-eye because sex releases oxytocin and serotonin, both of which help your body to relax. So if you're having difficulty sleeping, you might want to add a little quickie sex to your nighttime routine if you want to drift off to sleep right afterward. And you know what? I always say it's about self-confidence, and so is the quickie, because quickies boost self-confidence. And the more self-confident you are, the more likely you are to be having great sex. I cannot overestimate the benefits of confidence, sexual self-esteem. Quickies can be great for your sexual self-esteem. They serve as a great reminder that you and your partner still desire one another, even if you don't, but you do. You think you don't, but you actually do because you're not in the mood. But then once you get into the mood and you decide, well, not get into the mood, you're not in the mood. You don't feel like it. You're tired, but you love your partner. But then you actually accept your partner's advances for a quickie and you enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, we call that responsive desire. So a few minutes of passion can help you feel like you are on top of your game once again. And the immediacy of a quickie can help your long-term relationship retain that spark of passion because it is fun. It is exciting. It is great. So I say do not discount or dismiss the quickie. If you want to improve your relationship, strengthen your muscles because it will help to strengthen your pelvic floor, improve your heart health, lower your blood pressure, make you feel sexy again, I say do not discount the quickie. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.